Well, I have a confession to make to you this morning, and that is that my wife, Allie, who just gave the announcements a few minutes ago, is a wonderful cook. I know some of you are like, shocking, Sean, right? Uh, but uh, she is a wonderful cook, and she makes the best chocolate chip cookies you're ever going to eat. And uh, that process is one that is fascinating uh, to me. So you can think about all the bits and pieces of the chocolate chip cookies. You can think of the KitchenAid mixer, and you can picture that butter that comes out. And, and with that, but can you imagine just taking a stick of butter and just taking a nice bite out of that? Uh, it sounds just, just miserable, doesn't it? I know you can get it fried at the fair, right? But, uh, but butter in and of itself, not that great. Flour, not that great. Vanilla, um, the vanilla, not that great. Doesn't taste like the ice cream yet, right? Or you've got, uh, um, can you imagine just spoonfuls of, of flour that you're eating? All those bits and pieces that, that are pushed together turn into something new. My, my wife particularly loves to load those things full of chocolate chips. So uh, she takes out the 10-pound bag and, uh, you know, rations that out very unscientifically but beautifully. And um, once those bits and pieces are put together, eggs are cracked in there, then you've got something new, right? You guys know what we have. Um, now we have chocolate chip cookie dough. Now, chocolate chip cookie dough is a little different than all those bits and pieces, right? For some of us, we're willing to risk a little salmonella, you know, to, to test that out, to make sure that it's edible. Anyone confessing with me? A few of you are with me on that. Like, I'm like, I'll risk that, right? It's delicious, but I'm doubt, I doubt that you, any of you have ever eaten the entire bowl, right? Because there's a next step that has to happen. Sometimes she'll even refrigerate that thing overnight to, to make all that stuff merge together to turn into something special and new that once it's put into the fire, right? Whatever it is, 375 degrees, baked away, turned into something completely new, something so new that if I'm out mowing my lawn in the backyard as far away as I could possibly be, that smell can transport me into my house. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? It's amazing. I, I want to, to recognize something. There's a statement in scripture that says to you and I that when we are in Christ, we are a new creation. Now imagine after that, that work that Allie did, baking those things, a neighbor comes over from next door and, and she says, hey, I, I really need, or he says, I need some eggs. Do you have any eggs? And, and the last eggs that we had in our household were put into those cookies. There's no chance of recovering those things, right? Because they've been transformed into something new. And this morning, as we study 11 verses of chapter three of the book of Philippians, we are going to see the Apostle Paul talk a little bit about some of the ingredients that were added together to make up his life in this stage in his life. And, and what he's going to say is going to be very helpful for you and I. And he's going to say, yeah, there were old things in my life, things that were significant. He's going to talk about at least seven of them before he encountered the furnace of the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. When the Lord Jesus looked at him and said, Saul, who are you? What are you doing? Why are you persecuting my children? And then in that fire, it turned into something new that we get to celebrate together when we study these verses. We get to celebrate the fact that regardless of his circumstances, the Apostle Paul is a new creation, experiences great joy. 
We also get to recognize that as we study these verses together, that the Lord wants to protect us from those who might take the gospel and try to add new ingredients to it, to try to corrupt it and to misunderstand it and to leave us misunderstanding what it means to be a new creation in Christ Jesus. And and this morning, I want to imagine using your sanctified imagination for a second Uh, an ancient um, newscaster doing an investigative reporter coming in to visit the Apostle Paul. Remember when he penned the words of Philippians that we're going to study together today. He's shackled to Roman guards. Uh, He is under house arrest. And I want you to just imagine a journalist coming in to meet with the Apostle Paul. She sits across from him and she says, Paul, I've uh, or Saul, which one is it? Uh, I've been been following your life and your life story, and 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 we we tracked this from from the beginning, and it's amazing. You said like eighth day, you were you're circumcised. You were as Jewish as Jewish gets. That you were educated at Harvard. I mean, under the hands of Gamaliel. Uh, one of the highest educational experiences you could have possibly had at that time period. You were of the who's who of the the ancient Jerusalem uh, Jewish community, and you had all of the opportunities that were in front of you. In fact, you were applauded for your zeal and your commitment to persecuting the sect that was known as Christianity at the time. And, And now, I'm looking at you and I see bruises and wounds. I see your calluses on your hands from, I'm guessing you've been working hard, making tent, whatever it is. And she she looks across to him and she says, was it worth it? (laughs) What happened to you? And I'm guessing that the Apostle Paul, if that happened to him, would be able to look at her with such clarity and to be able to say to her, I encountered the living God. And when I encountered the living God, he changed everything. And when he changed everything, the answer to your other question, it was totally worth it for me. Brothers and sisters, this morning, when we talk about what it means to be a new creation, we're going to talk about what it means to forget what is behind. There's actually a verse that will show up next week when we study this together, but, but we're going to look at the uh, the the reasons why Paul could say forgetting what is behind and pressing on. Uh, and we're going to see this in a beautiful way. So if you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 1. And the reason why I think you need to hear this message today is that there is an, a gift that God has given us. And that is what we were is no longer what we are. We have a new promise, a new expectation, a new outlook, and even, uh, we're going to see it once again, a new joy. We get to rejoice in the fact that he's good. So Paul had this indicator in his life of joy. In chapter 3, verse 1, it begins this way. It says, finally, brothers, and I think it's appropriate to say, and sisters, Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who would mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. It, it's, it's intriguing to me that once again, Paul begins another section of scripture with the theme of joy. 
Now, this is not the only time. We've seen it in verse 3, 4, 18, and 25. We've seen it in chapter 2, 1, 2, 17, 18, 19, 28, and 29. We're going to see it in chapter 4, verses 1, 4, 10. Do you think he's trying to say something to us? Do you think he's trying to get something through to us? I sure do. I think that what the Apostle Paul is saying to us at the beginning, again, rejoice in the Lord, is that he's saying to us, for those of us who've been impacted by the truth of the gospel, our lives ought to be marked by joy. It ought to be marked by an understanding that our circumstances do not get to define our joy. And when I recognize that simple truth, I recognize the fact that we've been invited to receive God's joy, but we also recognize that we've been invited to receive God's protection as well. Now, I want to unpack a few of these sentences in these first few verses. Now, uh, some of you will think this is kind of funny, and, and we preachers, we get made fun of this. It's kind of funny that the Apostle Paul uses the term finally um, at the beginning of chapter 3, uh, when there have already only been two chapters in this book, and there will be two more chapters. Um, uh, one, one son asks his dad, Dad, what's the the preacher mean when he says, finally, uh, and the dad looks down at his son and he says, son, nothing. <laughs> uh, so, some of you know, we do this, right? We, we pastors, we, we look at uh, what we have to say and hear this transition. He's got so much more to say that he's uh, really ready to um, say, maybe this is just more of a transition. Finally, rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on to say, to write the same things to you. So for some of us, we look at this like, why does he keep repeating himself? Well, for him, he wants it to be a source of protection for us. He wants to protect us from those who would take the truth of the gospel that we've been exposed to and to attempt to add something to it or just distract from it. Uh, in his language today, we're going to see him kind of describing this as the wily schemes of the devil again. You can think of it as attempts to distract. And I'll just share with you that the deceiver who loves to steal, kill, and devour is masterful at, at coming up with ways to attack your joy. He's masterful at coming up with custom fit ways. I'm, I'm not a fly fisher, but I've seen movies and stories about them. And they, they're intentional about choosing the lure that is most attractive to the thing that they're pursuing. And today it's going to be described like hungry dogs elsewhere in scripture. It's, it's described Satan's, Satan's attacks are like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. And, and I want you to just catch this, that Satan knows how to custom fit an attack for you. And in this case, for a man who grew up very religious, the Apostle Paul is being said, it is being said to the Apostle Paul, wait, wait a second, aren't you religious enough? Haven't you missed out on some of the important steps to be the man that God wants you to be? And here the Apostle Paul wants to protect the church that he loves in Philippi. And he wants to warn them that the schemes of the devil are dangerous and they are intentional. So I write the same things to you and it's no trouble for me and it is safe for you. I think that he wants to use this concept of protecting them. Then he warns them, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who will mutilate the flesh for we are the true circumcision 
who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. For those of you who are going through discovery, we're talking about the Trinity. And uh, it's fun to see, or it's neat to see in verse 3, all the members of the Godhead. One God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here in the text. Brothers and sisters, we've all been invited to receive God's joy and his protection. I think what we see, and the Apostle Paul reminds us of truths like Nehemiah 8.10 that says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. When we obey God, we get to receive his joy. And, and so when we say that, I think it's appropriate to say that joy or a life that's filled with joy, like we get to see in the life of the Apostle Paul, is a good indicator of what God's doing inside of our heart. So if we lack joy, if we're bitter, discouraged, frustrated, and we articulate that to the world that's around us, then I think we're missing out on the opportunity to represent his good tidings of great joy in our life. I, I look at this and I, I see the fact that Satan wants to do some things in our life that lead to three D's here, desire to go back to an old way of things, a discontentment a indicator that we may still look for something more than what God has provided for us, a disappointment. Um, and I think that it's important for us to recognize that these are just some of his schemes. There are plenty of joy stealers out there, and you and I need God's protection from the nasty schemes of the deceiver. In this context, he uses a handful of words. He describes these individuals who we know historically as being Judaizers, people who were um, associated with the church. And as the new covenant was established, they look at the gospel and they say, it's too easy. Um, I think what you need to do is you need to take the gospel, especially a person who wasn't Jewish growing up, hadn't been circumcised in that religious spiritual ritual. And you take a new believer in Christ, Greek, wherever they come from, and you force them by law uh, to become a Jewish person first, or at least to obey the religious rules and to show that, that external sign in order to show their seriousness, commitment to the faith, their understanding of the Old Testament. And, and then from there, then they can understand the truth of the gospel. And the Apostle Paul's response back to them is quite fascinating to me. His, he, he turns it back upon them and he says to them that these three K words that would show up in Greek, they all start with K, are, th are threats to the very understanding of the truth of the gospel. What we see here is the first is he describes them uh, with the word kunas as dogs. Uh, Paul in his masterful stroke takes a word that was often used to describe Gentiles by Jews, called them just dogs. And he's going to use this to describe people who want to make this extra religious step after a person becomes a believer. When we lived in the Bahamas, Ali mentioned that we lived there for several years. And uh, we learned something. Some of you have been curious about this when you visited there. And that is if you see a person walking on the island that we lived in, Nassau, or some of the out islands, you'll often see a person having a stick with them or a rock with them, and you might think, well, that's a weird thing to do. Well, it's because of the wild feral dogs that lived on the island. They're called pot K 
pancakes, and that's the description of that thing that's left over on your pot uh, that you don't want, uh, but that's just residue left over from what you're cooking. And the, the idea with those pot cakes, they just run wild, and um, they'll eat just about anything. And in these days, when Paul uses this term, to describe these people that they're, they're actually threats. They're, they're dangerous. They're pursuing. They want to cause harm, actually, or the way that they live in the community. So don't think of like my sweet, precious, beagled Snoopy, right? Uh, but think about the, the fact that he's describing them as more like that lion that wants to steal, kill, devour. Calls them evildoers, people who would literally do evil work. Another K word in Greek that would have said to those people, they, they actually are religious. They want to give you permission to avoid Christ because they live in an evil way and they want to invite you to join them. They want to give you excuses. Maybe this is the person that wants to emphasize the freedom in Christ that, that could say, yeah, just live however you want. Uh, and, and in essence, put Jesus back on the cross with each of your sins. The last is mutilators, another word in Greek that would have started with K. And this would have been those who would harm themselves unnecessarily in an attempt to show their religious conviction. I love the way that the Puritan teacher, Matthew Henry, some of you have enjoyed his writing. He says this, the joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies. It will put our mouths out of, out of the taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. I love that description. He, he's describing the evil one as wanting to add something to the gospel, wanting to distract us from the true gift of Christ. And there's many versions of that. And he felt like it was so important to warn the church in Philippi that he drew these three out. Now we have our, our own examples of this. And, and I just want us to keep in front of us that that the tempter is wily with his schemes. Uh, this last week, I, I purchased some airline tickets for our family. And uh, right before I made that final purchase, um, there was a sign there, a, a pop-up that came up and it said, purchase this with 100% guarantee, money back guarantee, no worry, purchase 24-hour refund. Uh, and, and I um, made a change in my tickets. My wife's learning about this right now. This is going to be, she's probably nervous about this, right? So I decided to go with a different airline um, because I got a better deal. And um, that first one, uh, when I went back to follow up with them, uh, they said, um, well, that wasn't really a 100% money back guarantee because of the $100 booking fee. And if you want to complain about it, then you can talk to one of our digital bots that will tell you that you don't get your money back, right? <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about, right? And anybody's experienced like a, a promise that says 100%. And I'll just tell you, the way Satan works, this is how he works. He says to you and I, we can experience this, this pleasure or this joy. We can taste this. We can have both our new Christian life and our old, old spiritual life the way it was, and we can mesh them together. But he is ultimately the one that's right there on the edge to remind us of our failure and to steal, to kill, and to devour. Paul goes on to say in verse 4 the fact that he had a life 
that was consistent with what some of the things that the Judaizers wanted. Verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, I'm blameless, I'm sorry. As, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I gain, this is where, where he hit, what, let me stop right here. Right before we read verse 7. I want you to catch this. It looks like he's bragging, right? It looks like Paul is claiming all of these great things. But what, what I want to celebrate with you is that, is that he's just talking about all of the ingredients in that recipe that ultimately got baked on that road to Damascus to turn into something completely different. He's in fact drawing him, them in to, to stand back and say, yes, this is amazing. You have this pedigree. You have this experience, this religious encounter and yet what he then takes that and he shows them that he's found something so much more. He says this in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now I want to make this a little bit more real for us this morning. And I, I want to recognize that when the Apostle Paul was in that other setting, he was in a much more comfortable setting. He was in a setting where he was honored. He was in a setting where people respected him. He was in a setting where people knew his name and it wasn't spit on afterwards. He wasn't experiencing direct persecution at that time. He was experiencing a first-class lifestyle. Have you guys been in first class before? A few of you? You've heard about it at least, right? It's really good. It's delightful. It's intended to make you comfortable. He, he was experiencing a first-class lifestyle. And this last sentence is so good for us to see because he's saying, whatever you were before, God wanted to take that and turn it into something new. And it might not always feel like an upgrade, but at the end of his life, shackled with chains to Roman guards, the Apostle Paul, through his joy, is going to be able to say, but it was totally worth it. When they heard those words, they might have been surprised because they themselves may not have been willing to make that turn in their life. For some, when we hear this, we say, is it worth it? We ask the question of that, that hypothetical journalist, is it worth it? Paul's words are very clear, very blunt. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Four of the things that he listed as gain were things that were given to him. That those in his family that loved him had established these things. They put him on the right path. The last three were things that he fought for and contended for. And in the text, we're going to see him describe them with one of the more sharp words in scripture. He's going to call them rubbish. He's going to call them garbage. He's going to say that they're worth discarding because I experienced the ultimate upgrade. So church, this is where we, we help ourselves to apply this truth in an important way this morning. And that is we have to let go of what we were in order to become what the Lord desires for us to be. 
As Christ followers, we have to let go of what we were in order to become what he desires for us to be. And then he's going to use this beautiful language to describe the new covenant bought with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 8, he goes on to say, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He is writing those other things off as a total loss. I love, and I mentioned earlier that my, my wife has been blessed by having a father-in-law that has been a spiritual leader in her life. And um, when, when Allie's mom married her stepfather, uh, Allie's stepfather, one of the decisions that he made, uh, I want you to picture, uh, what, what color was the Corvette, Allie? Was it, red. it was red. So he, um, he was, a, as a single man, he um, was a principal, I believe at the time, or a school teacher. And uh, had saved up his money and bought the car, right? I, I think for some of us, even in this room, we might say the red Corvette. And what year was it? We don't know. She, she'll remember. But uh, it was awesome. It was the car of his dreams. I think he ordered it from the factory. And um, then uh, when he married into this family uh, that had lots of kids, he had to take that car he chose to take that car to give the keys of that car back to someone else and who gave him the keys for a minivan, okay? Uh, you understand, or was it a conversion van even better? Station wagon, even better. All right, so station wagon, get your story right, John. So, so, so I want you to picture this, that he's what, what might appear on the outside, downgrading, Right? He had to give up something that was valuable to him. But I promise you, if I sat across from him today, if I were interviewing him today, Dennis Lambus, was the decision that you made to do that worth it? He would say, absolutely. And I'll just tell you, as, a, as, the, as we read these words from the Apostle Paul, he's, he's saying, I counted what I sacrificed as loss. It's all in the loss column. Uh, but, but it's nothing compared to the benefit that I've received, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Can you say that in your life? What I was was one thing, but now the Lord has asked me to do something. He's given me something new. Matthew 16, 25, the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. That's not a maybe. That's not a might could. That's a this is what will happen. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet he forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man gain in return for his soul? You understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying uh, what the Apostle Paul is saying here. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from an empty pursuit of the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is what we know theologically as substitutionary atonement, that the Lord died on the cross for our sins, paid what we could not pay to cleanse us and make us white as snow. So the challenge that comes with this is a simple teaching that's throughout scripture and that it's, it's impossible for us to serve two masters. We can't serve ourselves and serve God at the same time. And, 
In scripture, there's many examples, uh, stories of people who find a pearl and they're willing to sell everything that they have to make this purchase because it's so valuable. A man working in a field and he finds a treasure and he goes, takes everything that he has, he sells it in order to achieve this thing. They're, they're tough uh, illustrations to transition into our culture, but the point that's it's really blunt and it's just, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth that kind of investment. And it's important for us to understand that Paul, part of the reason why he could have joy is he understood a very important thing about being a Christ follower. And that is what we're living in right now is a time period where the treasure is ours, but we don't have it in full quite yet. <laughs> the, the treasure is ours, but we don't get to experience all of the blessings of it quite yet. There, there's more work for us to do. There's more challenges for us. There's more responsibility that the Lord has for us in and so, yes, to surrender what we were in order to become what God wants us to be is what he tells us we need to do. But that is not a subtraction from my perspective, but I believe that it's a gift. It says this in verse 10, so that I might know him, that I might know the power of his resurrection. This is Paul being very personal. And that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So, so the, the Apostle Paul is talking here about the benefits of obedience. Uh, one, of, one of my best friends in my life uh, was, for a majority of his life, in, in international finance. Uh, and he was the in-the-country club, first class every time, um, their home was amazing, he and his wife, and they were so blessed, so blessed. And they were quick to thank the Lord for his provision for them. At a time in his life um, when he was growing in his walk with the Lord, he was actually doing um, PCL, practical Christian living, similar to what you and I are doing as we're wrestling through discovery. And, and there was a, a part of that process, a man who loved him enough to express to him, Bob, that the gospel isn't just for your Sundays, but it's for every day of your life and every, every moment of your life. And he just felt like God was calling him to uh, become a pastor, to do ministry with his life. And so I can't imagine what that conversation was like with his wife who had um, spent her life being married to someone who was in international finance and first class and to make that transition. But he, he did some classes. He um, he worked hard and he transitioned from being a, a man who poured his life into international finance and he poured his life into other men and uh, preaching the gospel and discipleship. Now, I happened to know him at a stage in his life where he was doing that work. He actually hired me to serve as a pastor in our previous church. And um, in that process, uh, there were many times that I got to look at him from a distance and just say, man, I, I wonder, I, I wonder if he ever questions if it was worth it for him. Because I, I rode with him on Frontier Airlines where we were like, you know, wedged against this indefinitely not first class. I'll just say that. And I just, I wonder if there were times when he regretted that in his life. And in the times that I interacted with him, if I asked him that question, for him, he would be a person who could say exactly what the Apostle Paul said. Oh, it was absolutely worth it. 
It was worth it from every step of the way because of the fact that my God is good. And you know what? That man graduated to heaven. And I believe in my heart that when he graduated to heaven, felt like early because of cancer, um, one of the things that I had the privilege of doing was to drive with him to his treatments and uh, in, in Akron. And I can remember having conversations without, with him about this. Was it worth it? Have you, how, do, you, do you regret? No regrets. This has been the great commitment of my life. And so when he graduates, what I recognize is that he gets to experience the blessing that the Apostle Paul's talking about here, that, that he gets to recognize that, that he's shared in the sufferings of Christ, but he also gets to recognize that he's shared in the joy and blessings of a life well lived. You know what's amazing for me is that the room that you and I are standing in was a result of that ministry that he had invested. I, when we went through our church refinance this last year, one of the names that came up was um, Pastor Bob Chafee from Grace Church, who was a part of negotiating the purchase of this building. And, and what it made me smile when I read that because I thought, man, it's great to have somebody who knows a little bit of international finance when they're helping you buy a church building, right? Um, that, that he was a part of helping us uh, acquire this, this property that uh, was not a church at the time, but it was because he believed that God wanted to have an influence in Brunswick for the sake of the gospel, and I, and I say all of that just to stand back and say, God's good, isn't he? God, God knows what he's doing. And he's willing to churn up inside of our heart that, that, that question, like, choose, choose today whom you're going to serve. When, when the Apostle Paul encountered the living God on the road to Damascus, uh, there was a direct standing in the light, uh, pardon my use of the word, just baking that was happening in his life. And the question was, was he going to allow the Lord to transform him into something completely new? For some of us, we're resistant to that right now because we want to have our life before and we want to have this new life. And it's just not how it works, brothers and sisters. That's actually one of the lies of Satan. I think it's one of the temptations of the Judaizers is that they were saying at that time, we want you to be able to have both of those things. And, and really, there's a, there's a bluntness to this, even in the text when it uses the word dead. Uh, I think that it's saying to us, there's kind of a line in the sand on this one. When verse 10, when it says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death by any means possible, that, they, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The benefits of obedience in Christ is amazing. We've been describing it today as unspeakable joy. But I'll just tell you, it's not necessarily on your own terms. Do you understand that? It's understood as being on the terms of the good baker who's at work in your life doing something. But the cost for it is something that's significant. Uh, some of you, like me, enjoy baseball. I, uh, I will close with this, all right? We'll see how long that takes me to close. Uh, I will close with this, but um, I like baseball, and um, there's, there's something that happens in a game sometimes. We use the term sacrificial bunt or sacrifice bunt. And, and, I, and from my own experience playing a little bit of baseball in high school, 
I, I was a, you can picture me at the plate. I was a grip it and rip it kind of guy. I wanted to hit it over the fence every time I had a chance to get up to try to hit the ball. And, and there are times, though, on a team where what the coach, the, the third base coach, you look at for your instructions as to, that they may, may say to a, a team member, let me say, hey, I, I need you to bunt right now. And, and in your mind, you say, but, but I want to I wanna hit it out of the park. Uh, you, you, you look at the picture and you say, I got his number. Or you look at the circumstance here, but you don't know what you're talking about. And actually, it doesn't help your record or your pay if you bunt very often, right? There, at least those statistics in the old days, that didn't even get marked down on the sheet. And, and, and you look at it and you're like, no, but, I, but, but the bunt is intended to do something on purpose that helps the thing that you're a part of, the team that you're on to accomplish the task that you're doing mutually together. And I want to just recognize today, if you and I are going to obey the Lord, we don't get to set the terms of obedience. Do you understand that? We, we don't get to tell him what our obedience is going to look like. But he's given us the, the, the call. He, as the, the master, the king, the Lord of our life, has said to us, this is what I'm asking of you. And what he expects of us is he expects us to surrender to him. And so, so this morning, we have this beautiful example. This wasn't a, a prideful time for the Apostle Paul to brag about his past. Uh, I think instead, we can just distill it down to him saying, it's totally worth it, totally worth it. Whatever I sacrificed, it was worth it. Can you say that in your own life this morning? Uh, can you say that? Or are you attempting to hold on to something uh, that the Lord has asked you to let go of? Or are you tempted by some of those things that some people might try to do where they take the gospel and they add something to it to distract from the understanding of God's grace being sufficient, his power being made perfect in our weakness? So uh, the cost of admission is everything. It's pretty high. Um, but the benefits of it, I can just say from personal experience, steps of daily growing in it, I can resonate with the Apostle Paul in this to say it's totally and utterly worth it.